It's Wednesday, December 12th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Today is all about the triple Bs, border drama, biker gangs, and baby boomers. First, the president had a contentious meeting with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer over averting a government shutdown. The central issue was funding the border wall. It ended with the president saying he would be proud to shut the government down over border security. Marisa Fernandez, reporter for Axios, joins us to talk about the fight and where progress on the wall is right now. Next, could the survival of the notorious biker gang, the Mongols, hinge on a trademark? The feds are hoping so. It's an interesting tactic. Take away their signature insignia and logo, and you strip them of their identity. They are in court now facing an array of racketeering charges. Joel Rubin, reporter for the LA Times, joins us to discuss how the feds are trying to take down the Mongols. Finally, baby boomers, more than ever, are aging alone, and the resulting loneliness could be a public health threat. Researchers have found that loneliness can take a physical toll on a person, resulting in many different health concerns. Janet Adamy, news editor at The Wall Street Journal, joins us to discuss a generation of Americans entering old age and being the least prepared for it. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. If we don't get what we want, one way or the other, whether it's through you, through a military, through anything you want to call, I will shut down the government. Okay, absolutely. And I am proud, and I'll tell you what, I am proud to shut down the government for border security, Chuck. Joining us now is Marisa Fernandez, reporter for Axios. There was a big meeting between President Trump, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, and Mike Pence, although he didn't do very much. It was a meeting to possibly avert a government shutdown. And it was all focused on funding for President Trump's border wall. And before they had their private talks, it was uh, just kind of open where the media was there. They were able to ask a few questions and it got very contentious. They were arguing back and forth, raising their voices. And it all ended with President Trump saying that he'd be proud to shut down the government to get what he wants, to get funding for the border wall and for national security. What happened during that meeting? We've been leading up to this for a while. Past couple weeks, late November, right, like we've been anticipating this meeting, essentially. Trump has said publicly earlier in November that he's totally willing to shut down the government if he doesn't get this $5 billion approved for a wall. So he thinks that this is like the great political move for him, and he thinks that he can totally succeed. So what happened in that meeting was very interesting, right? It wasn't necessarily supposed to be open to the press. It was something that Senator Schumer and Representative Pelosi was talking about how they wanted to talk to President Trump in private. They wanted to get this behind closed doors. Mostly, this was a meeting that we thought was going to come up with a conclusion, a solution. But we just got a few good fiery quotes in there from all parties involved and nothing really got accomplished. I mean, it seemed like it was supposed to just be a photo op and then the conversation, the meeting happens behind closed doors. There was a few times when Nancy Pelosi was like, let's talk about this uh, behind closed doors. Let's uh, talk about this later, not in front of the cameras, because they knew it was going to get contentious. To be descriptive of how it looked, I mean, Mike Pence was sitting next to the president. He was quiet, didn't say anything. Chuck Schumer was trying to get snarky and throw in some digs at the president. It went on for like 20 minutes. Senator Schumer definitely baited the president a couple of times, especially with the government shutdown, because he's had history of trying to pull those strings when with the previous government shutdown. And so, you know, he definitely was trying to pin it on President Trump saying, you know, well, if you want to shut down, if you want to shut down, President Trump finally said, yes, I would... 
I would be proud to have a shutdown, right? And so now, like, that's essentially the story. And now we are left with no solution on a partial government shutdown. Senator Schumer even called President Trump having a temper tantrum. And Pelosi, you could tell she was frustrated that she was out and open with the press about this. Yeah, I think uh, the government shutdown, partial government shutdown should happen on December 21st. That's when the funding runs out. So if nothing gets accomplished before then, and by the sounds of this meeting, it doesn't sound like it will, (laughs) that's when it will be happening. They went to have their closed door meetings and it didn't seem like anything got accomplished there. After that, Nancy Pelosi went out and started talking about the president's manhood and saying, oh, this wall thing is trying to associate it to his manhood and whatnot. So it's just so crazy. And and this is like a preview of what's going to happen in the coming years as the Democrats take control of the House. It's just going to be the fight between the president, the House and the Senate. And this is what we're in for. And that's kind of sad, you know, because we've previously reported several times that lots of freshman Democratic representatives in Congress are excited about bipartisan legislation. are excited to try and work with the other side. You know, they actually preferred, we have sources saying that Democrats prefer bipartisan legislation over partly spending all of our time and energy investigating this administration. It just goes to show this is going to be something that we're going to continue talking about and it's going to be contentious. The president wants $5 billion for the wall. Democrats are willing to give up $1.3 billion for the wall. But what is the status of of the border wall right now. I know they're replacing a lot of parts, you know, things that have gotten damaged or broken. And the administration is characterizing that as this is new border wall. This is part of Trump's new border wall. So there's a bunch of projects that they've been announced, but things are moving in two mile increments, four mile increments, six mile increments. What's going on with the wall right now? There's a lot of misconceptions about this so-called border wall and the funding for it. This $1.3 billion that both sides of the legislative branch are willing to give away is for border security. So that's not necessarily all going toward the border wall. Senator Schumer has previously said he was going to be okay with giving $1.6 billion for border security. Ms. Pelosi definitely is sticking with $1.3 billion, give or take. What's going on with the border wall is that Tuesday, Trump in the morning you know, a slew of tweets that were talking kind of a bit about the status of the border wall and where the caravan's going and where they're staying. And some of it was true. Some of it wasn't. Mr. Trump is correct that some of the sections of the existing border, like you said, are being renovated to replace those old barriers. So they are considering that a success in part of building this wall that Trump considers to be like his huge political win. But a misconception is that Democrats want open borders. He tweeted that early on Tuesday morning. And like, that's completely false. Democrats, you saw in in the press meeting with Pelosi and Schumer that they want border security and they want to come up with a solution. What Trump is trying to say is that he thinks that this has been a major success so far. And it's just not as far along as the administration is leading to believe. It's definitely been a slow crawl. Marisa Fernandez, reporter for Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. The drug trafficking, I can't really speak on. Those are individual acts. It's not as a whole, as a club. But as far as like the murders or the attempted murders, they were self-defense. 
Joining us now is Joel Rubin, reporter for the LA Times covering the federal courts. We're going to be talking about the notorious biker club, the Mongols. They've been in the crosshairs of the government for a long time. They've been attacked for killings, drug trafficking, all sorts of crazy stuff. Right now, their survival could hinge all on the trademark, the trademark of their patch, their insignia. Tell us a little bit about what's going on right now in the courts with the Mongols. They are locked in yet another legal battle with the federal government. This is the second major racketeering case over the past decade that the federal government has brought against the Mongols. The Mongols, just by way of background, are one of a handful of what the, the feds call a uh, outlaw motorcycle gang. We have in this group the Hells Angels, the Vagos, the Outlaws, and other assorted groups that take a certain amount of pride in sort of identifying as these motorcycle clubs that exist outside the norm. They call themselves the one percenters because they say 99% of motorcycle gangs are law-abiding and innocent social clubs. And then there are these guys. They don't do anything to discourage the portrayal as being just that as outlaws. The current case is a racketeering case, as I said, and the government has brought it against the gang's leadership group called Mongol Nation. The government is hoping that if they get a guilty verdict, right now the jury is deliberating after weeks of testimony and if the jury comes back with a guilty verdict, the government hopes to convince the judge that the gang should forfeit the trademark that they have over their insignia. They have this image that they all wear on the back of their biker jackets and elsewhere to identify themselves as part of this gang. And they have a trademark on it and the government wants it. I've lived in Southern California all of my life. And I just remember numerous occasions driving on the freeway. You hear the rumble of the motorcycles and you see them all pass by and you notice the leather vest with the patch on there. It looks like an Asian man with a ponytail. He's wearing sunglasses, riding a motorcycle, and then the big letters, it says Mongols on there. So they're easily identifiable. I guess what they're hoping to do is that if they get a guilty verdict, they're going to take ownership of that trademark and then not let them wear it. They think that this will strip their identity from the motorcycle club. I don't know if that's necessarily going to work. They could still be a motorcycle gang without that logo. They might get a new logo. That's the big question. Yeah, we talked to several trademark lawyers and experts about this legal theory that the government appears to be pursuing, and they've been pursuing it for some time. They tried it back in a previous case that they brought against the Mongols and seemed to be having some success with judges, but in the end did not succeed in getting the trademark for more of a legal technicality that the people that they were bringing the lawsuit against didn't technically own the, the trademark. So this time around, they're hoping to have more success, and they seem to be pursuing this idea that if the government can get their hands on the ownership of this trademark, that then they would have control over who has the right to wear the trademark or wear any piece of clothing with the trademarked image on it. Experts I've talked to said, you know, I'm not so sure that that's going to play out either practically or even legally. There's a host of constitutional issues. You know, somebody could say, I have every right under the First Amendment to express myself, and this is how I choose to do it, by wearing this image. And then on a trademark front, people said, I'm just not sure trademark 
trademark law gives somebody or gives the government the authority to go and pull a jacket off their back because it has a trademark image on it. I mean, if anything, all you're doing is making those instant collector's items, (laughs) you know, people (laughs) wanting to snatch up as many as they can as they can and just hold them for whatever reason. Yes, I think you'd see on eBay and prices going up for Mongol attire. But, you know, I think at the heart of it is this idea that these images, this, this insignia and the patches that the Mongols and other motorcycle clubs wear are, according to the folks I talked to, these images are crucial to them. They're crucial to their identity. They are sacred images for them, and they take a lot of pride in wearing them. It's how they identify themselves at social gatherings and how they identify where they fit in on the hierarchy, which is this very unwritten but very strict sort of hierarchy of seniority and who has authority over who. And I think the government seems to think that if we can choke off control of that image, that this motorcycle gang won't be adrift in that world. What are some of the things that these guys are allegedly up to? As you were saying, they could pose as any normal social club with a constitution and bylaws and a hierarchy of memberships, but they've found some of these outposts for them, a bunch of weapons, bulletproof vests, and in the current case that they're involved in, uh, there was ATF agents who were posing as Mongols members, and uh, you know they were testifying as to what was going on, and they were accused of killing a Hell's Angels member. I mean, this is part of what goes on with these motorcycle clubs. They're kind of war factions at times. The current case is a case that is largely a repeat or rehash of a prosecution that the government brought against more than 80 members of the Mongol gang back in 2008. And it included a whole host of allegations ranging from several murders to attempted murder to many uh, allegations of drug dealing. And the idea now is the government is trying to convince a jury that all those crimes, which individuals have now pled guilty to from that earlier trial, the government is now trying to make the case that the gang itself or the club itself and its leadership is part of that organized sort of criminal conspiracy. And since they own the trademark, that the government could then seize it through forfeiture. Joel Rubin, reporter for the LA Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Happy to be here. Thanks. The loneliness that we're seeing in this generation is not just an individual level concern where you've got some people who may feel a little sad. It's really a public health issue, kind of a sleeper public health issue, because the loneliness of this generation is expected to result in more health problems and higher costs. Joining us now is Janet Adamy news editor at the Wall Street Journal. Americans more than ever are aging alone. We're always talking about the aging population and the coming impact that's going to have on medical care and resulting in this looming public health threat. So what do we know about how Americans are aging? What we looked at was the prevalence of loneliness among the baby boomer generation. This is a generation that was kind of independent minded. They were really the first generation to mainstream divorce. They had fewer children than previous generations. And the result is now that these boomers are getting into their retirement years, they're more likely to be alone than previous generations were. More than one in four baby boomers is divorced or never married. About one in six lives alone. And what we found is that the rates of loneliness measured by certain surveys were higher among this generation. So not just higher than younger generations, but also even higher than the older generation of silent generation folks 
who would be kind of like the oldest Americans. Baby boomers reported higher rates of loneliness. And the concern is that being lonely is tied to some pretty negative health consequences. So the loneliness that we're seeing in this generation is not just an individual level concern where you've got some people who may feel a little sad. It's really a public health issue, kind of a sleeper public health issue, because the loneliness of this generation is expected to result in more health problems and higher costs. And just for reference, this physical toll that it takes, it's being linked to uh, an early mortality rate, kind of like if you would smoke 15 cigarettes a day or drink more than six alcoholic drinks a day. It's even worse for your life, for your longevity than people that are obese or physically inactive. Like it just takes a huge toll on all sorts of different ways on your body. The research on that, which is pretty definitive, is stunning. Yes. And what we found is that some of this comes from if you live with someone, they're going to remind you to take your medication. You know, they're going to remind you of your doctor's appointment. But also if something goes wrong, there's somebody there to help you and to take care of you. Or if you get released from the hospital, sort of to help transition you back to home. One of the gentlemen I spoke with is a guy in Washington, D.C., who divorced a long time ago, never had any children, lives by himself, was walking into his house, fell, and he couldn't get up. He laid there for at least two days. He happened to have a urinary tract infection, and that infection and the fact that he couldn't get up, wasn't drinking any water, couldn't get to the phone. The situation in his body led to a very dangerous condition called sepsis. He wasn't found until a friend called and, you know, noticed he wasn't picking up the phone. She sent emergency personnel, and by the time they found him. His kidneys were shutting down. His brain had swelled and he was lucky to be alive, quite frankly. So what we know is that that that's where some of the health risks come from. Who does this affect mostly? I was reading that women are affected more than men on this. That's right. Part of that is just the demographics of women. Their life expectancy is five years longer than men. So women's life expectancy right now is up until age 81. So they're just more likely to be widowed than men are. They also have a harder time dating and forming new relationships later in life. And interestingly, it tends to be the most educated women who are the most likely to be alone for these reasons. What are we doing to help out with this? From your article, I didn't know that there was an assistant secretary for aging. The Trump administration is trying to use faith-based partnerships, a partnership inside churches to try to reach out to people. Because you do have a lot of older people who go to church, they trust the church, they show up, and they're trying to look at ways to have um, churches tap into this population a little bit better. I think, interestingly, the thing that I find pretty neat is something called the Village to Village Network. And that is something that's kind of popped up organically over the last 15 years across the country. It's groups of seniors who have formed what they call villages. And you can join the village and you can turn to the village for help with certain services. And they will help find you someone to help set this stuff up. They help you do old age planning and they also do social events. It's a nice kind of in-between for somebody who realizes they may be at risk of being isolated, but they don't want to change their living situation. At the Wall Street Journal, you guys are doing a series of stories on this called Unprepared. One of the other articles was a generation of Americans is entering old age and they're the least prepared in decades. And this has to do with saving money right and things like that. So tell us a little bit about that series. Yeah, the series really started with this idea that the baby boomers had just had not saved enough money for retirement and they were caught in the middle of a lot of averse forces. You had people who were sort of starting to approach retirement just as the stock market crashed the last decade and that around the time when you had the financial crisis, which hurt people's home values, 
home values, retirement savings, and meant that people ended up losing their jobs maybe sooner than they had expected. And also, I think for some of the same reasons, we talk about a generation that sort of lived for the moment and prized individuality. Well, there wasn't, there may not have been as much of a strain of planning. You also have with that generation, what people call the sandwich generation. They're in many cases still or were recently taking care of their, you know, their very old parents and maybe even also helping out kids who have not fully launched into the job market. So for a variety of reasons, this generation is the least prepared for retirement of any generation in recent history. And the stories have explored that. We've also got some retirement calculators on the site that can kind of help people plug in what they have, what they've saved to get a sense of how well they're doing. So I encourage people to take a look at those. Janet Adamy, news editor at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure, Oscar. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.